is wise and understanding among you? When James wrote those words, it seems he had a particular criticism in his mind. But for a moment, let's take him at face value and ask the question ourselves, who is it? Who is wise and understanding among us? Who is it in your life that carries deep wisdom? In your whole life, who is the wisest person you have ever known? Think about that person. Bring that person's face to your mind. Sit with that person for a moment. Think about that person. What is it about that person that makes that person so wise? What is it about that person's life that you admire most? What part of them would you most hope to emulate in your own life? I wonder. I wonder if we all took time to describe our wisest person and tell a story about that person who came to our mind. I wonder how many of our answers and stories would sound the same. And I wonder which ones would sound different. What is wisdom? What makes someone wise? In most circumstances, wisdom is contextual, isn't it? A wise boss has different skills from a wise grandparent. A wise physician is praised for different things than a wise soldier. A wise hedge fund manager can probably make you a lot of money, but you'll need a wise friend to help you know how to spend it well. If you are putting together a team of people to lead a church, a vestry, perhaps, what sort of wisdom would you look for? Financial wisdom? Legal wisdom? Creative wisdom? Strategic wisdom? Conventional wisdom suggests that a balanced approach would be best, picking the wisest people from a number of different disciplines, getting them together to share the work of a congregation. Surely that is how we would build a winning team. But how could we ever be sure that the pool of talent we assembled would come together and set aside their individual egos in order to make it possible to work together for the common good? How would the brightest and best among us figure out how to work well together? Whose wisdom would be subjected to the wisdom of another in order that they could actually get something done? When James wrote this letter to the Jewish Christian community, he recognized that there were two competing wisdoms within the church, and that competition threatened to rip the body of Christ apart. Who is wise in understanding among you, he asked, not inviting the recipients of the letter to name simply the people who were wise in understanding among them, but to begin to think about what sort of wisdom belongs in the church in the first place. 
in every generation, there are lots of wise and talented people who could share their gifts with the Christian community. But as James explained, there is only one wisdom that works for the building up of the body of Christ. If someone is truly wise, James wrote, that person must show by their good life that their works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. That's what wisdom from above looks like. It is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. That's the kind of godly wisdom that produces a harvest of righteousness, a bounty of goodness that fills the Christian community to overflowing. Because we belong to God through Jesus Christ, the one who gave up his life for the sake of the world, that means that we measure fruitfulness and the wisdom that produces fruitfulness in ways that don't compute in earthly terms. But so often, the church forgets how to look for and how to rely on that wisdom that comes from above And we fall again and again into that trap of celebrating instead the sort of wisdom that carries weight in the boardroom and the courtroom, in the state house and in the White House. It is that kind of wisdom, James writes, that people who have bitter envy envy and selfish ambition in their hearts, it's to that wisdom that they've given their true allegiance. Their wisdom is nothing less than earthly, unspiritual, even devilish, demonic. That kind of wisdom, that kind of thinking produces disorder and wickedness even. To help us understand what James is trying to convey, take a look at that word. Let's think about that word selfish ambition, a Greek word that is important to this passage, but also a word that shows up all through the New Testament. Paul loves to use this word, this phrase selfish ambition, to describe those forces that tend to pull congregations apart. It's derived from the Greek word that literally means work for hire or mercenary activity. But to get a sense of what that looks like within a church, the best place to look is actually the only pre-New Testament example that historians and archaeologists have found. Only once that we can find has this word been used before the New Testament was written, and it was Aristotle who wrote it in its 4th century B.C. work, Politics. And when Aristotle used that word, He used it to describe the narrow partisan zeal of factional, greedy politicians in his own day. Imagine that. Leaders in the church acting like greedy politicians seeking their own interests at the expense of the wider community. I find it strangely comforting to know that the church has been struggling with the same sort of thing since its very beginning. In the 17th century, a philosopher, Benedict de Spinoza, wrote, 
in a way that might as well describe the church today, I have often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they claim, is the readiest criterion of their faith. What is the readiest criterion of our faith in the 21st century? As you read the news and look at social media and listen to popular culture, what behaviors do you think most clearly describe the Christian faith we hold dear? In a healthy and balanced and peaceable congregation like ours, it's easy to pretend that we are immune from such rancor and hatred, that what fringe radicals do in the name of Jesus has nothing to do with what we do here, but no branch of the Jesus movement can be isolated from all the rest. We're all connected, like it or not. And as far as I can tell, the Christians who are getting the most attention, the ones who seem to have the microphone every time the microphone is on, they're not sowing peace but the opposite of peace. As members of the body of Christ, as participants in the wider Christian community, that isn't someone else's problem to address. It's ours. But I find the church's continual struggle with selfish ambition and worldly wisdom comforting because it means that the remedy for us is more or less the same as it was in James's day. Those conflicts and disputes among you, James wrote, where do they come from? Not from the hearts of other people, but even from within us. Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you, James asked. Each of us All of us are subject to that tension, that conflict between the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that belongs in the world. And as long as we are in this life, that war will take place within us. But God has the power working through us to put to death that selfish ambition that is so familiar to us, as familiar as every breath we take. In the end, The answer is beautifully familiar to us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, James writes. Subject yourselves. Realign yourselves. Reorient yourselves to your proper relationship with God. That is the principal act of worship. We worship God in order to situate ourselves where God can get through to us and shape our lives and lead even us into true blessing. But to get to that place, we have to let go of that selfish ambition that bubbles up within us and cling instead to the wisdom of God. That's what we practice here in this place. When we worship, we do that, not only with our minds and our hearts, but even with our bodies, too, every time we kneel. By submitting ourselves to God, 
by bowing before the Almighty, we also, as James writes, resist the devil. The word translated as resist literally means withstand, as in to take our stand against the one who would deceive us by bowing ourselves before God. When we draw near to God, when we worship God, we take our stand by refusing to bow to the one whose devilish wisdom brings disorder and wickedness into the church and into our lives. Our hope, therefore, is in real worship, true worship, beautiful, transformative worship. This is where God's people find their egos dissolved and their wills replaced by God's will. It happens every time we come together, as long as we come together to worship. I don't know what you came here today expecting to take away with you, but if you'll start instead with what you can give, with that part of you that you might, with God's help, let go of. If you'll start with that and give it to God, God will take it from you and will leave something beautiful in its place. Thanks be to God. Amen.